I'll draw your attention today back to Genesis chapter 3. As we read God's word beginning in verse 14, we'll read down through verse 21. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and clothed them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, Sovereign Lord, we come before you this morning, Lord, and we thank you for an opportunity that we have to look to your word and to see the good news that is found in it. Lord, we pray that you would be with us here this morning, that your spirit would open our eyes and our hearts and our ears, that we might hear the message that you would have before us from your word this morning. Lord, I pray for the church. Lord, I pray for this local body, this local assembly, but I pray for the church in general, Lord, that you would strengthen it, that you would build it up. Lord, that you would... Strengthen those who stand today and minister your word. Lord, that it might be living as it's proclaimed and it might accomplish what you send it forth to accomplish, Lord. Lord, bring repentance where it is needed. Bring understanding where it is needed. Open blind eyes. Open deaf ears this morning. Lord, and may many this day be added to the church. And the praise and the glory will go to you for it. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, Augustine, or Augustine, however you choose to pronounce it, Augustine in his work, The City of God, relates to his reader the difficulty of the life of a fallen man in a fallen world. He writes, Who can describe 
Who can conceive the number and severity of the punishments which afflict the human race? Pains which are not only the accompaniment of the wickedness of godly men, but are part of the human condition and the common misery. He then goes on to provide a lengthy list, and I won't even begin to to quote this list, of, of those things which make up this misery that he described here. I believe that we can bear witness to this in our own lives, can we not? Where do we even begin to list our sorrows, our fears, our troubles, our heartaches, and our struggles? They're everywhere. Didn't Job cover this? Job 14.1 Man who is born of a woman is what? A few days and full of trouble. Bonner puts it in a list of these things. The death, the darkness, the sorrow, the sickness, the tears, the weariness, the madness, the confusion, the bloodshed, the furious hatred between man and man, which makes earth a suburb of hell, the moaning of the hospital, the carnage of the battlefield, the blood-stained sword and the death-dealing artillery, the earthquake, the volcano, the hurricane, the tempest, the aching head, and the empty heart, and the burdened spirit, and the shaded brow, and the weary brain, and tottering limbs. All of these things are the common condition of man. James Montgomery Boyce said it like this, Our melodies may be different, but our song is all the same. In other words, the setting, the details, the actors, the script, all may be different, but they all tell the same story of hardship and heartache being the human condition. And we just read why. We just read why. So here at the outset, let me ask you a question. Is there any hope? Is there any hope? Is there any place where we can turn? Is there any refuge? Is there any covering for a race and world in such a dreadful condition? Do we have a desperate situation with no hope of recovery? Do we have that? Let me ask it another way. Is there any hope of salvation for fallen man in a fallen world? Is there any good news? Well, I hope you heard the resounding ring of good news in the message last week. I hope you heard the good news. The first mention of the gospel that we found here in Genesis 3. And I trust that the Spirit will bring out even more in what we look at this morning as we continue in this, this look at faith's foundation from the first book of the Bible. God's revelation to us about who He is, who we are, why things are the way they are, and what He has done to remedy the situation that we find ourselves in as a fallen race in a fallen world.
These are not trivial matters. I always remember we used to play Trivial Pursuit. Uh, and every once in a while we'd break out Bible trivia. And I remember, I don't remember if it was dad or who it was, but it was always like, that's a terrible name for a, for a game that has such important questions as part of it. It's not trivial. Well, these are not trivial matters that we're looking at. These truths that we're learning, these foundations of our faith are not minor, matters of minor importance. We treat a lot of our physical lives and the things that we experience in our day-to-day -day lives as life or death matters. These things that we experience in our obligations that we find ourselves in in our day-to-day -day lives. When in reality, the things before us in Scripture are vastly more important than anything that we experience in our daily lives as we walk around in this physical life that we have. These things that we're dealing with have eternal weight to them. They are truly life or death matters. Well, let's look to God's word here and trust that the Spirit would draw our attention to Him this morning and to His word this morning. Well, last week we looked at God's dealing with the enemy, Satan. Uh, the first to have his sentence placed upon him here in Genesis chapter 3. As he stands before the righteous judge. Here in what I would call a courtroom scene of sorts. Uh, Satan, as the first to rebel against his maker, was tried, convicted, and sentenced at the very outset. And now here this morning, we get to verse 16, where the second rebellious creature stands before her maker to have her sentence announced. Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply, multiply your, your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Death, we talked about last week, if you remember, was immediate. This separation upon Adam's transgressing the command of God was instantaneous, both upon Adam and Eve. When Adam sinned, when he transgressed, that death, that separation between the two of them and between them and God happened instantaneously. There was an immediate effect upon them. Now here, God deals with the woman and gives her the sentence that goes along with that immediate consequence that they have already had handed down to them. God says, I will. He says, I will. Once again, this is God that is doing this. We talked about this last week. This is God's righteous and holy judgment. He will, God will multiply her pain in childbearing as a consequence for what she has done. This I will should shut up our mouths immediately, immediately at all the difficulties that we have in this fallen world. All the hardships and trouble that come our way are the result of sin. Let's be very clear about that at the upset. Every hardship that we face is a result of sin. Whether it's hardship from without 
or hardship from within. It's still a result of sin. Sin was not only inherited by us, and the the result of this comes to us not only by way of our inheritance of a sin nature, but also because we are complicit in sin. Who among us can say, I've done no wrong? Who among us can say, I have no sin? Well, John deals with that, does he not? In the New Testament, in 1 John, 1 John 1.10, he says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. It's a pretty strong statement, is it not? So we are complicit in this sin nature that we have inherited. We grumble and complain at the suffering that we have oftentimes brought upon ourselves. This is both man and woman. Here in this verse specifically, speaking to the woman, but just wait because he's going to address the man as well. God says, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. What should have been the greatest fulfillment of the woman's role. Her greatest achievement, her greatest joy, is now to be accompanied by pain, an exceeding pain at that. He has multiplied her pain in childbearing. Was it not God who commanded the first two of our race, Adam and Eve? Moses records it for us if we look back at Genesis 1.28. God created man and woman. This is that overview of God's creating man and woman. And then in chapter 2, he gives us the details of what he did in creating man and woman. But in this overview... Let's go back to verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So he says to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. This was his charge to them. And much of that would then fall upon the woman to be fruitful, to multiply their number. Yet now in light of the rebellion that has occurred here in this paradise of God, they are to multiply their number now through pain in childbirth. Much pain. And then there is a second part to this. Some believe that this is nothing more than a repeating or a continuation of the first part, but I really believe that this goes further. He says to the woman, in pain, you shall bring forth children. This goes well beyond, I believe, just the pain of labor. This is a continued pain that is to be experienced as the child grows and matures. Because of sin, we are not in proper communion with each other as members of the human race. And we are not even in proper communion with our own children. They're set at odds with us, seeking to do that which pleases them and that which they desire for themselves. There's a constant struggle, even between parents and children, a constant rub that festers. 
So much so that one of the Ten Commandments has to be set aside for this, that children are to obey, they're to honor their father and mother. Well, let's look at the third part of this now. In Genesis 3.16, God says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Some translations read here, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. But I don't believe that this is the correct way of translating this. This is the same word used if you look ahead at Genesis 4.7. This is the same wording that is used. If you do well, you will, not, will you not be accepted? And if you do not, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. This is the same wording that is used here. There are a few ways to, that those who, who look at the, the, this other way of translating this uh, in some of the text, there's some ways that they attempt to explain it, but I believe that it falls short. Uh, we won't take the time to look at this. There's a few fairly odd ones that are out there um, and that we can, we can talk about sometime in the future, but we're not going to take time to do that here. But even the wording, he shall rule over you, should be enough that we catch the idea of what Moses is putting forth by inspiration of God here or given to us uh, through Moses from God, that we would understand that this means that her desire is now contrary to that of her husband. But he shall rule over you. This is an effect of the curse, the fall, in God's judgment, his righteous and holy judgment regarding these things, that the woman would seek to usurp the headship of her husband. Their desires would oftentimes be at odds with one another. And she would desire to have it her way instead of the way that her husband would lead her to have it. Well, we don't pass over scriptures like this out of, out of a concern for what the world thinks. Obviously, this is not popular with the world in any way, shape, or form. But we don't have a concern for what the world thinks or for how the world wars against us in this or this truth. This is God's word. It's not our own. It's not our own word or our own, own desires. Our own way, if you think about it, what we desire is what got us into this mess in the first place. We don't care about what our way or our word is. We care about what God's word says and what God's will is. When we rightly understand these things, we will see that this is an impossible situation here that the woman's desire is contrary to her husband's. And if this is an impossible situation in the flesh, then where is the hope of having a good union or a proper marriage, a peaceful union, a loving and God-honoring relationship? Where is the hope of this? where the woman is biblically submissive and the husband is biblically leading in love. Where's the hope of this? Well, I'm going to 
let the cat out of the bag and jump ahead a little bit. It's only in union with Christ. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 points us directly to this. Go back and listen to those messages sometime. Go back and read that passage of Scripture and see what it is that Christ has done in restoring this union of marriage between a man and a woman. The world doesn't want to hear this. The world can't stand to listen to this. It will not accept this. But we'll proclaim it because it's the word of God. Well, we must move on. Next in order, we come to the sentence or the curse, if you will, upon Adam in consequence for his sin and rebellion against his creator and his God. I point out that he is the third here to rebel against God. But the fall happens upon his rebellion. Because of the command not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was to him. So the fall occurs when he rebels, when he transgresses God's command. But in actuality, he was the third one to rebel against God. It's something I will mention in passing that uh, this chain of, of addresses and sentencing uh, by God is very interesting. Each one addressed in the order of their rebellion. Each one sentenced or cursed, if you will, in that order. The first to rebel being who? Satan. The next one to transgress God's command was Eve. And the third was Adam. We have recorded in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. Well, let me, let me say one thing before we go there. And we won't, I won't spend time on this. But doesn't it make also sense then that this was the occasion of Satan's fall? That this was the occasion of Satan's fall and judgment was here in the Garden of Eden? versus sometime long before this. We dealt with this before in our study in Ephesians. Um, I'll just mention that as something for us to, to ponder and maybe ponder in the future. But we have recorded here in Genesis three seventeen through 19, God's address to Adam. And he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, rightly brings out here that Adam, when he addressed God before, when God addressed them as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and he called them out from their hiding place, that Adam excused the fault by laying blame upon his wife. She gave it to me. But God does not admit the excuse. This is like a scene in a courtroom, you see, where God sits upon the bench as the judge. 
and the accused stands up and makes accuse, uh, an excuse for his crime or tries to produce some sort of evidence for his crime, and God the judge says, I will not admit that. That has no bearing upon the case. She may have tempted him to do it. She may have led him to do it. But she could not force him to do it. And God rightly places the blame upon Adam because you, not because she, but because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Because you have eaten of the tree of which you were commanded not to eat. God is essentially saying, Adam, the fault is yours. And because you have done this thing, Adam wasn't fooled into making this decision. He wasn't fooled into or deceived into committing this sin. He knowingly, to use a courtroom or a, a legal way of looking at things, he knowingly and intentionally listened to the voice of his wife and he obeyed her. There was no argument. There was no second thought. There was no headship that was occurring here that should have been. There was no testing her words against the words of God. None of that was occurring. There was only Adam's will to please and obey the voice of his wife over his will to obey the voice of his sovereign God and creator. In Genesis 3.17, he says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Here also is pain that is introduced into life. First introduced into uh, the world through what God does with Eve and now what God does with Adam. Something which neither Adam and Eve had any knowledge of. Knew nothing about pain. Knew nothing of struggle. Knew nothing of hardship. Yet now there will be pain in their lives as a result of sin. The Hebrew word here used for pain also entails not only pain as in uh, inflicting some sort of, of trying to not use the, the word pain, but pain. Not inflicting just pain, but also a sense of trouble and fatigue is included in this Hebrew word that is used here. It stands in very sharp contrast to all that Adam had ever experienced since he was created. No pain, no weariness about him, no trouble, nothing. Notice here as well that this affects not only Adam, but the very ground has entered into the curse. The very ground has. Can you imagine what this world must have looked like prior to the curse? How sweet the fruit must have been. Genesis 3.18 says, Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. No more is there to be ease in dealing with that which grows. The earth itself 
is set at opposition to mankind's effort. And Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. This is going to be unpleasant for mankind. It's a hard labor. Strenuous now to produce that which is to be eaten. In pain, man will have to labor and grow weary as he battles against the cursed ground. And this will ever be before his eyes. Wherever he looks and wants to find food, there's going to be pain, there's going to be struggle, there's going to be hardship, there's going to be labor that is involved with this. Have our modern conveniences done away with the pain and the struggle? Lessened it maybe, but it's still there. Even with all of our learning, all of the inventions that we have, it's still painful. The whole of creation has been marred by the fall. Romans 8, Paul in writing to the Romans in 8 verse 20 through 22 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will, listen to this, will be set, this is not mankind, this is creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. All of creation has been affected by the fall. Calvin says, For the earth does not bear fruit for itself, but in order that food may be supplied to us out of its bowels. The Lord, however, determined that his anger should, like a deluge, overflow all parts of the earth, that wherever man might look, the atrocity of sin of his sin should meet his eyes. Before the fall, the state of the world was a most fair and delightful mirror of divine favor and paternal indulgence towards man. Now, in all of the elements we perceive, we are cursed. Everywhere we look, every work we attempt, every effort we make, we see this. Do you see, too, how that this strikes at the very heart of the purpose of Adam? Look at Genesis 2.15. What was one of the main purposes of, God, of Adam, for, uh, Adam from God? Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. This was Adam's work to do. This was part of Adam's purpose was to work. Work is not a consequence of the fall. Work is good. Work is holy. Work is ordained by God. Even in a pre-fall world. Look at 
But the pain of work, the struggle of work, the hardship of work, the wearisome nature of work, the sweat of work is a consequence of the fall. I wish I could explain what work would have been like before the fall, but I have absolutely no concept or no frame of reference for knowing what that would look like. None at all. Even the work we enjoy is not altogether pleasant. There's labor in it. It's difficult at times. We grow fatigued. We burn out. We get bored. We grow tired. I have no idea what Adam's work in the garden would have been like. Altogether pleasant. Altogether lovely. Wonderful. What would that be like? Maybe one day we'll know. God goes on then and tells Adam, these things you experience, this pain, this uh, even the, the curse upon the ground that is in opposition to you, that he will experience these things until he reaches the last part of the curse. The last part of the curse. By the sweat, in, in verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till or until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam, the man of dust, shall now labor under pain and under suffering until he returns to that out of which he was made. There are those who believe that man, if left in an unfallen state, never having committed sin, never having rebelled against God, that Adam, that, that mankind would have passed on to an even better life at some point in a way that's maybe hinted at us, at, hinted to us in the life of Enoch and the life of Elijah. Enoch walked with God and what? He was not. Elijah was what? Taken up in a chariot of fire. Never having had to go through that separation. You remember what we talked about death being? Never having to endure the separation of the body and the soul. That mixture of what we are as God has created us. But what we know for sure is now that God's judgment has fallen upon Adam, we must go through this process of physical death where the body and the soul are separated and the body decays and goes back to the dust. The body of man separates from the soul and enters into corruption, into decay, or into corruption as the scriptures speak of it. Many scriptures speak of this. Psalm 104:29. When you hide your face they are dismayed. When you take away their breath they die and return to the dust. Ecclesiastes 12:7, And the dust returns to the earth as it was. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. 
There are many passages, several that we could look at in reference here this morning, but for time's sake, we don't have time to go into that. Does this separation itself not cause pain and sorrow? Don't we dread it? Don't we try and prevent it? Don't we do everything humanly possible to prolong our existence physically here in this world? We dread this. But I don't want to look too much at this because I want to get to the good news because it's right over the horizon. Genesis 3.20 The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Here Adam either names Eve at this point or Moses is recording for us that this was her name already given to her and is now giving us the reason why. It really doesn't matter. I want to point out a couple things here briefly. Eve indeed is the mother of all the human race. And I mention, I want to mention this first part because I think it's, it's very important in light of what we have going on in our society right now. She is our first matriarch of the family of the human race. She's the beginning point. My friends, there is no other race of mankind. There's not. We don't have multiple races. We are of one common ancestry. One common ancestry. And Eve is the mother of all of us. Her name means life or life giver. All of the human race will come from her childbirths in which she is now under a sentence of pain and suffering when she goes through this birthing process, this carrying of a child and birthing a child and raising a child is to be done in God multiplying her pain. But there's a second thing I want to mention here, and I believe we must make mention of this. Her name means life. And from what we learned last week, we learned that one would come from her and defeat our enemy. Satan's curse contained in it the first of the gospel revelations, the very first gospel. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. I don't think that Adam and Eve could even begin to understand with the clarity that we now have in light of God's full revelation, the full revelation of God's word. I don't think that they could even begin to understand the depth of what was being told to them here. I don't think they had anything close to a full comprehension of what this promise, this good news entailed. But there was enough. There was enough. I do not, I, I do think that it was enough that reference is made to Eve's name being given to her 
that she is the giver of life. Her name means life because she was the mother of all living. I think that it goes beyond the mere fact that she is the mother of the whole human race to the ultimate truth that from her seed comes one who is life itself. That from her seed, the seed, Jesus Christ, would come in due time and defeat the enemy in sin and the sting of sin, which is what? Death. Which is the opposite of what? Life. And now we get to some really good news. Verse 21. Good news for a fallen man. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God did this. The Lord God made for Adam and Eve a garment. First of all, this was not a loincloth or an apron like they made for themselves. That was a partial covering. This is a garment. It's a tunic or it's a robe which provided them a covering of God's own making. Here, here is an actual end to nakedness. It all started, if you remember, in Genesis 2.25. And the man and his wife, this was pre-fall, and the man and his wife were naked, were both naked, and were not ashamed. And then the fall, and we read in Genesis 3.7, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. But this was inadequate. It didn't cover their shame and nakedness, and they still hid from God. Because even wearing that which they made, they knew that they were still naked. Now at last... There's a covering. Genesis 3.21. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Second, this is a covering of skin with which he clothed them. This was not made in the way that the world was created. This is a different Hebrew word here. God took what already was and made it into a covering for them. And it was skin. It was the skin that comes from something that is living. Not something that is uh, from an inanimate object. This is flesh that is ripped from something that was living. Death had to occur for this to take place. This is the first physical death in history. This is it. And it was to provide a covering for nakedness and shame of fallen man. Do you not see the foreshadowing here, my friends? 
Do you not see it? Or a prophesying of sorts in type and pictures? The picture of what is necessary to provide covering for sin? God has absolutely and utterly rejected the work of Adam and Eve in attempting to cover the nakedness themselves. Is it not clear beyond doubt that their effort, their fleshly, vain, futile effort or attempt to cover themselves was rejected by God who made himself a covering for them? The flesh profits nothing. No good thing comes from the flesh. There is no help in fleshly doing or making. God must do this for lost and fallen sinners. This is God's sovereign work. Hughes says it is clear that this is a sovereign work of God, conceived and executed by God alone. And then he goes on to say, it is a work that Adam and Eve would never have conceived of because it involved the unprecedented taking of life. Brothers and sisters, think about this. Ponder this. Carry this with you throughout the week. The first thing that died in history, was a sacrifice. Well, where does this lead us? What's the conclusion of the whole matter from the text that we looked at this morning? Well, this leads us to no other place than to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The God-man the Messiah, the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent, to the lion of the tribe of Judah, to the God-man who became flesh and dwelt among us, right to our Jehovah said Kenu, our the Lord our righteousness, to the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That's where this leads us. This is good news. So all, this all leads us to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you see God's grace? His grace and His mercy here extended to mankind even in our father Adam and our mother Eve who fell into sin and whose sin led the whole of human, our human race into sin. There's grace here. Instead of obliterating them and wiping them off the face of the earth in anger and wrath regarding the rebellion which he had every right and authority to do. Oh, he curses them, but there is blessing mixed in with the curse. Eve must endure pain and suffering, but it's in childbirth that she must experience pain in bringing forth a child there is blessing in this that there will be a seed and in due time there's one coming of that seed who is the seed 
who will crush the head of our enemy? Adam must endure pain and struggle. By sweat and in hardship, he will work, but he'll still be fed. There'll still be food. Oh, he's going to sweat while he does it. He's going to get blisters. He's going to get calluses. He's going to get pricked by thorns and thistles, but he'll still eat. There's grace here. And Adam, as all of us, must eventually have our bodies returned to the dust. That's what he was. He was the man of dust. That's what Adam means. Earth. Dust. And after 930 years on the earth, working the ground in pain and suffering and by the sweat of his face, Adam dies and he returns to the dust. His body saw corruption. His bones have long since dried up and turned to fine dust. Out of the ground from which he came, he's returned. Oh, but brothers and sisters, there's one who died, yet saw no corruption. was raised from the dead in victory over sin, death, and hell after bearing the sins of his people on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. David spoke of this in Psalm 16, 9 through 10. Therefore my heart is glad, David said. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. Who is David speaking of here? This Holy One. Who doesn't see corruption? Who is he talking about? Well, we know surely who this is, don't we? This is Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God. How do we know for sure? How do we know for sure who this is? Well, look with me at Acts. Turn to Acts 2. Beginning in verse 25, 23, 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified 
and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, losing, loosing the pangs of death because his, it was not possible. This was a thing that was impossible. It was not possible for him to be held by it. By what? By death. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, and my flesh also dwell will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of the gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence, Peter preaching here, saying, I'm sure of this. I have every confidence in this about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb in, in, in his, excuse me, died and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore, talking about David now, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of all that, we are all witnesses. And if you won't take Peter's word for it, turn over to Acts 13. Now let's hear from Paul. First Peter saying this, and now Paul saying this, Acts 13, 29. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, that is Jesus Christ, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come with him, up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and laid with his fathers and saw corruption. He returned to the dust. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. He did not return to dust. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone 
who believes is freed from everything from which he could not be freed by the law of Moses. Can't do it yourself. It's God's work. It's God's sovereign work. Do you see this? If you don't, may the Spirit of God do this for you that you may see Christ. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who took on himself the penalty of our sin and paid the debt of that sin and went to a grave and was raised from death. He, by perfect obedience, was not subject to the words of Genesis 3.19, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. He didn't even come from dust. He came in the form of man, born of a virgin, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he saw no corruption. This was such a powerful message that when Peter preached that in Acts 2, 3,000 people believed, were baptized, and added to the church. They knew where David's grave was. They knew where he was buried. They knew that his bones had long since turned to dust. And now Peter is saying, here is the one who David spoke of. Here's the one that Moses spoke of. The first Adam was a man of dust. The second Adam is a man of life. Well, what else you might ask? Okay, I I see that there's one in whom my sins might be forgiven that saw no corruption. I'll give you that, but is that enough? that I can then be brought before the sovereign creator and God and stand before him. What about my nakedness? Oh, didn't you hear the good news? Didn't you hear it? There's a sacrifice that has been made to clothe you. The same sacrifice. What is this clothing sacrifice? Well, the same death that was pictured in the sacrifice of the animal to clothe Adam and Eve there in Genesis 3 and was a daily reminder to them. Think about every day they walked upon the earth wearing those skins was a reminder to them that death was necessary to provide a covering for their sin, their nakedness, and their shame. The death that would pictured in that was pictured in that death is the death of the once and for all sacrifice for sin, the death of Jesus Christ. And our being clothed in his righteousness should always be a reminder to us of the fact that his death was necessary that we might be clothed in a spotless garment of righteousness. To stand before God. Woe be to the one who stands in any other garment. 
What did we read in our congregational reading? A parable from Christ. Matthew 22. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw a man there who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is only one garment that will do. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through, 53 through 55 says, For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the moral puts on immort mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that it is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? What had this one that it's speaking of here put on? What was his garment? It's Christ. The one who saw no corruption has now wrapped himself around us as a garment, as our covering. We have this pictured in Zechariah 3, 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. I've taken your filthy garment off of you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. He both removed the filth and gave him a pure and righteous garment to cover him, to be clothed with. Luke 15, 22, in the parable of the prodigal son, he was wallowing in the pig mire. And he comes home. And the father says to his servants in Luke 15, 22, bring quickly the best robe. He doesn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. He went and got his robe filthy, dirty. But bring him the best robe. Romans 13, 14 makes it abundantly clear. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision of the flesh to gratify its desires. Galatians 3, 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Here's our garment. It's Christ. Well, what does this mean to be baptized into Christ? Well, it doesn't mean immersion by water into the church. That's important. There's no doubt that that's important. The one who has experienced faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has repented from their sins and turned to Christ, should be baptized, should make a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. By entering the waters of baptism 
and picturing in that way being immersed in this baptism by being immersed is picturing that they were in Christ when Christ died. They were in Christ when Christ was buried and they were in Christ when Christ was raised from the dead. But that's not the type of baptism that it's talking about here. It's what that baptism signifies. It's being in Christ. Remember way a long time ago when we talked about the analogy of being in Christ, it's being in the ark. It's being shut up in the ark. Everything comes down on the ark, but not on those inside. The wrath of God bore down on Christ. It means to be found in Christ, to be placed in Christ. It's to be united to Christ. To be the recipient of all that he, that, that's his. This miraculous gift that's been given to you. All his goodness. All his righteousness. The love that the Father has for him has now been given to us. We're wearing his garment. The garment of the Son of God. And all that we were gets placed on him. All our filth, all our sin, all our iniquity, all our transgressions. He took upon himself as a willing sacrifice to satisfy his father. Do you realize, Christian, what has been done for you? If you're outside of Christ, do you see that you have a need for this? This is the foundation of faith. Laid for us in Genesis 3. May God firmly fix this upon our minds and our hearts. That we might meditate on it. In love. And for the lost, may the Spirit of God speak to you. Through the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ found in the Old Testament in the opening sections of the first book that reveals to us what God wants us to hear and cause you to flee from self, from trying to do, trying to make your own covering, trying to be your, be your own earner of anything that's good and flee to Christ who's already done it all. Let's pray. Lord, help us this morning. Help us to understand what it is that you've done for us. May we be grateful, have hearts overflowing with praise and thanksgiving. And may those who are outside of you be caused to have their blinded eyes open, the scales fall from their eyes, and may they behold their sin, may they behold the Savior, and may they run to him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.